Hey, thanks, Terry, for sharing. What we're going to share today from God's Word is uh, fits exactly right along with uh, some of the things that Terry was sharing today. We're going to talk about underliers. Is that even a word? It is now. You may recognize it as a takeoff on, on the title of a popular book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers, which is an enter- entertaining and uh, somewhat contrarian take on, on what it is that makes outliers, which are exceptionally successful people, above the norm. Yes, hard work over a sustained period of time has a lot to do with it. He talks, as some of you know, about 10,000 hours. But there are also other factors beyond their control, like the fact that most professional hockey players were born in the first few months of the year. Or that the majority of the top richest people in North America were born in 1955. I always remember that because that was my birth year and I'm not one of them. Why 1955? Because they were at the right age, the right place, the right time when the personal computer revolution revolution happened. They were part of it. But when it comes to the bigger picture success in life that all of us can be part of, the number one factor in that is not outliers. It's underliers. What do we mean by underliers? We're talking about the foundations, understanding, seeing, trusting in, living confidently on a solid and deep foundation that is there. The song we just sang, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand, is one of the songs that's been looping in my head in a good kind of way this entire month, and actually a month earlier as I began to study for this teaching series, that show us how the core way to deal with our fears is to see how God has rocked our world. Not in a sense of totally exploding it apart, although sometimes he allows us to experience that in order to help us see and become more deeply aware that he always has been and in Jesus has become the solid rock on which we stand and in whom we're secure. As I was thinking about the psalm we'll be looking at today, I I thought especially about the story behind that song that we just sang. Um, And... um, it was written uh, by a certain Edward Mote. Edward did not have a solid faith background. He didn't have a faith background at all. He grew up in London in the early 1800s where his parents together managed a pub. He was left at home alone and spent most of his Saturdays and Sundays wandering and playing in the streets. If you want to know what that was like in the early 1800s, think Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. He had no awareness of God. As a matter of fact, um, as he put it, so ignorant was I that I did not know there was a God. As an older teenager, though, he somehow came in contact with a group of Christians and his life became oriented, focused, and stable. He got away from street life and apprenticed as a cabinet maker. And for 37 years, he plied his trade day in and day out, faithfully and successfully. When he was uh, in his mid-30s, he was uh, walking to work one morning and reflecting on his life and how his life in Jesus had given him stability and focus, and, and, and he just felt he should try his hand at writing a song that would be a reminder to him 
of this foundation that he had come on to. And by the time he got to work, the words and melody of the chorus had come to him on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And over the course of the next week or two, he composed the verses to that song, and it became his theme song, a great way for him to celebrate and keep his mind and heart oriented. You see, the underliers, the solid foundation on which we stand is more than just God as, a, as an entity or, the, or Jesus even as a person. Some of you are saying, what do you mean? It can't be more than Jesus. Well, you're right, technically. But in a sense, it is more than Jesus. The underliers include what we have in Jesus. And what Edward Mott experienced was that in Jesus, he had a new spiritual history that created an entirely different memory that totally dominated, transformed, and redeemed the story of his past and the memories of a neglected childhood. Is that your story? Let's look at our rock psalm for today. Uh, Psalm 78. Turn to it in your Bible or your Bible app. As, As you get there in your Bible app, if you're like me, the first thing you'll do is you'll start scrolling down to see how long the psalm is. Just warning you, you'll be scrolling for a while. It's a long one. If you get bored with the talking head thing this morning, just read the psalm twice and you're going to get a passing grade for engagement today. Uh, So the reason this song came onto my radar was because halfway through the psalm is one of the great rock references in the book of Psalms, verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock, that God Most High was their Redeemer. By the way, many times in the book of Psalms, when it refers to God as the rock, the next, next line refers to him as Redeemer. Not just something static. It's something that God does because of who he is. Now that statement sounds so, so spiritual, doesn't it? Like they were holy and righteous like I could never be, right? Well, if you read the context of that statement, as we will a bit later, you'll realize it's not quite as complimentary as it sounds, actually. So let's go back to the beginning of the psalm, or Actually, first, a big picture in the psalm. This long psalm develops this underlier's theme in three parts. You might want to jot this down in your Bible margin. It's it's helped me as I've thought through how this psalm relates to me and, and how it all comes together. The first eight verses starts with the solution. Living with an active memory of our spiritual roots, our spiritual history. And then the bulk of the psalm, almost 50 verses actually over 50 verses, natural tendency that we have, and that is spirals of self-sabotage, how ignoring our spiritual history, letting them go from our memory, erodes our spiritual memory, and it always leads to downhill cycles. And then he wraps it up by pointing forward to what God is going to do in history. first eight verses tell us what the purpose of the psalm is, and we're going to spend a bulk of our time there to see and live in light of the underliers, the solid foundation. Verse 1, O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. Can you feel his, his passion, his sense of urgency? Verse 2, he gives them a summary of how he's going to teach them. I will open my mouth in parables. 
And the way this word parable is used here is it's, it's uh, simply what we would call a simile, uh, a comparison. This is like that. Comparing something in one area of truth to something that's in our face today. What is he comparing? I will utter, he says, hidden things. The word hidden is the key to understanding the psalm and, and what it's teaching us. It's that, it's that word hidden that actually made me came, come up with the term underliers. Hidden does not mean some secret formula for success or some, some esoteric idea or mantra or ritual that only the initiated, the insiders, get. You know, it's, it's easy to look at, at faith that way, isn't it? Weird ideas that I just, just don't get or sort of OCD-ish kind of superstitions that people do and believe that somehow that'll make things turn out well. And that is how we sometimes live. When I was in high school playing basketball, I, I tried to live that way with basketball. I, I learned that a lot of successful athletes had, um, had these little superstitious rituals, right? And things they did before every, day, every game that would sort of give them luck. And so I thought, I don't believe in that, but I'll try it. I tried to develop the superstition that if I sat in the same place on a bench in a locker room uh, as I put my, my uniform shorts every game, uh, yes, they were the shorty shorts of the 70s, uh, and if I, if I put them on my right leg first rather than my left leg, which was the natural way, that somehow that would be an omen for a successful game. I did it once. just couldn't get myself thinking that way. Some people see faith like that way. You've got to do some routine, ritual every day, every week or, or month. If I skip it, I'm gonna, something bad's going to happen to me or it won't work for me. When I was in, when I was in college, in Bible college, uh, I was at home after my second year and, and playing in a local fastball league with some of my old buddies and, and some of the make-it-happen people in town. And, and we got to the championship game. It was a stack team, uh, which happened to be on a Sunday morning. And from my church circles, it was, it was clearly communicated to me that that I was supposed to be a leader, which meant I was supposed to be an example to those who were younger than me. And I wanted to take that role seriously. I did. And, and in my day, what that meant was making a sacrifice to make Sunday morning church the number one priority of the week. Definitely, and most definitely to some people, over sports. And this was my example moment. But I felt like I'd made a commitment to this team and did not want to be the one to blame for losing the game because I didn't show up. Yeah, and besides, aren't, don't you, aren't you going to be a pastor? Would you want people to skip church and go play ball? Well, it depends how well I prepared, I guess. After wrestling it over for just a little bit, I skipped church. And in that game... As I tried to stretch a single into a double, I slid into second base. I was safe, but I rolled my ankle. My cleats hooked, the, hooked second base, and I rolled my ankle. And when I got home, my mother just could not help but say that she wondered whether that happened because I had made the wrong decision. See, it's, it's, it's so easy to, to think of our faith life in that way. Now, actions do have consequences, no doubt. And this psalm, we'll talk about some of those. But it's not about some hidden or secret formula or ritual that you have to follow or you're going to do something wrong. Something will go wrong. The word hidden, or as some translations say, dark, simply means out of sight. Things that are there. 
just as much as those buildings are there in the dark that you can't see. They're there, and they're real. It's just we can't see them. And what are those things we can't see? Well, we don't have to guess at what he's talking about. He tells us things from, our, from of old, what we have heard of, what our fathers have told us. History. Things that happened in the past. We will not hide them from our father's children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. The things that God has done that are so important to this psalmist and not, and not the things that I see him or think I see him, what God does for me every day, they're hidden because they're in the past. So what do they have to do for me? Well, they're the rock-solid foundation on which I'm building my life. Now, although we, we can't be totally sure, it seems that this psalm was probably written during the reign of King David, which was about 1000 B.C. The, the high point of Israel's history was the reigns of David and Solomon. And the stories that this psalmist covers in that large middle section of this psalm, uh, verses 9 to 64, as he rehearses some of the low points of their history, are from things that happened during the Exodus, which was roughly 1450 B.C. 400 to 450 years earlier are the things that he wants them to bring to light and make sure they remember. So when he talks about remembering what God did, he's asking them to make more important, more significant in their minds what happened several hundred years ago than what is happening to them right now. Now that is a tough sell, right? But here's the point. The rock on which we stand is not just God. It's what God has done in history and a certainly, especially kinds, some, certain kinds of things in history all along. He decreed, verse 5, statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then, when they remembered their spiritual history, they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. Those of you who know the whole story will recognize that the psalmist is reminding them something that Moses had told them early, but 450 years earlier, that was very important for their success as a nation and as a people of God. Deuteronomy 6, talk to parents saying, it's your job to know your own spiritual history and to live in light of it and talk about it with your kids. Teach them their spiritual history so that they will be able to look at everything in life now in light of those roots. Why is this so important to do? Be because they're hidden things. They're in the past. You see, here's the deal. We have, we have no trouble talking about something that happens in the moment as, as a God thing, right? Thursday night, nine o'clock, left the building and it was a, Thursday night was when all the snow happened, and by the t from the time I'd been here to the time I'd gone, there's about 10 centimeters of snow on the ground. And when I left the building, I clicked my car door open. I saw the lights go on, so I knew it opened. And got to the car, started shoveling, scraping the snow off, and I thought, oh, I, should, I should start my car while I'm doing this. And no keys. No keys. 
So I started looking around. No, I didn't take off all my clothes. I, I, but I, I checked everywhere. I had, I had dropped them somewhere in the deep snow, I thought. Fancy key with a remote door lock, which cost hundreds of dollars to replace. And a post box key. Ka-ching, ka-ching. Several of us searched for it in the ever-deepening snow for 30 minutes. Shoveling snow, kicking around, praying the whole time. I finally gave up. Took a lot longer to give up because I had to call and confess to my wife because I needed her key. <laughs> oh, did I pray? Didn't happen. Next day, one of the preschool parents turned in a set of keys she found in the snow outside to the office. <laughs> I said, Thank you, God. Must be a God thing, right? And I, I have no doubt God does some of those things to affirm us and sometimes to gently remind us, but that kind of experience does not help build on a solid foundation. Deal with our fears and our failures. What we have to know, what we have to count on, what we have to pass on to the next generation is how God has acted big time in history to move his story forward that nothing can stand against and against which everything must be measured, weighed, and judged. The things that are really the foundation on which we stand. Two things there to remember. Number one, the praiseworthy deeds of God. And number two, Statues, the testimony and instructions from God. What were the deeds? Well, the primary one was the Exodus. In very dramatic ways, redeeming his people from slavery in Egypt, taking them on a long and difficult and winding journey from slavery in Egypt to the land of his promise, which included a very dramatic month in front of Mount Sinai when God gave them their constitution and the foundation for how they were to live as people. Let me say it again. Confident living is not primarily about having all those poignant God moments that pump me up for the next two hours. Confident living is about understanding the spiritual history, the inheritance I have because of what God has done in history, in time and space, to demonstrate who he is and that he does have a story that he is writing and he's inviting me to be part of that story. Our son, as I told this story several weeks ago and a lot of you figured out I was talking about my son, and he said I could say it. So uh, um, we adopted him as a baby. Um, and at 30 years old, he decided to be responsible and go get some life insurance. And, and, of course, he had to fill out his medical history form, declaring what kinds of things were and were not part of his family medical history. Heart disease, no. High blood pressure, no. Cancer. He looked up at his wife because he knew that I had had a brush with cancer. And his wife, who caught on first, started chuckling and said, I think those questions are referring to your genetic history, <laughs> not your adoptive history. <laughs> when he told me that story, I was so touched as a father because I, I realized that he was so enveloped and he so related to his adoptive history that he did not even think in light of his genetic history. But here's the deal with God. God does not invite us to fill in the form declaring the glitches in our genetic history. He knows them. He gives us the list of our adoptive history. And in that list, he's saying to us, no, I no longer see, I do not want you to see your genetic history, the things you have done and experienced. In Jesus, your adoptive history becomes your genetic history. 
Oh yeah, there's failures in the past, but remember what I have done. Don't you know your story? Your story is not about what happened to you yesterday, the way you blew it this morning, or some good thing that might have happened that was a God thing. Your story is about the hidden, below-the-surface realities that happened in history by which I claimed you for myself to be part of my story. Parents, let me remind you, that's your big task. In order to help your children overcome fear and live in confidence, your task is not about paving the road ahead for your kids so they can have a smooth life. It's about preparing your kids for the road ahead, rough or smooth, by you living in the story and telling them the story and helping them to see and live in light of the story of what God has done in history from the beginning of time. I was reading this week uh, the transcript uh, of an interview with a clinical psychologist from, from the University of Toronto, who happens to be a bit in the news these days, um, about a new contrarian kind of book that he's written, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. Um, he's convinced, as he said in this interview, that the, that the increase in severe anxieties in children today and, and he, he's convinced of this because of his 20 years of working with at least 20 uh, clients a week. He's convinced that the increase in severe anxieties in children today is because, in his words, our society has become an overprotective mother. If you protect people, he says, you reduce their competence. The mother problem, as he calls it, is the mentality... I don't want you to suffer any distress right now. No, we do not need to pave the step, each step ahead for our kids. In the stresses and sufferings of life, we need to prepare our children by teaching them the solid foundation in which we live. And he says, if we teach our, our, our or if we try to reduce the stress of our kids now, we're dooming them to stress later. Going on in this interview, there's, he even quotes the Old Testament a couple of times, and the interviewer said to him, do you believe in God? And in his very professorial kind of way, he said, well, I think the proper answer is no. But I am afraid he might exist. What the psalmist is talking about is more than just hearing what happened to some people back then from which we get lessons Well, he does talk about lessons when he gets to the negative part in their history in in verse 9 and following. But the positive part of what happened to them, for us, was not lessons. It was the foundation, the actual foundation that's built. It's our spiritual history. Listen to how Paul puts it many years later in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. For he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundations the creation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. If he chose us before all these things happened, this was our history. This is our history. You know, we turn that statement of Paul's into a discussion about philosophical theology, theoretical thinking, free will versus the sovereignty of God in the sense that in philosophy is called determinism. Now, those are not worthless discussions. They're good discussions. But... Paul's point in this statement is to help us to see the rich spiritual history that is ours, hidden because it's in the past, 
Just because it's in the past does not mean it's irrelevant or somehow less significant than what happens to me today. No, it's the foundation for responding to everything that happens to me today. So, I could go on. I could rant even longer about that, but let's just wrap this piece up with some reflection. Number one, has God's story become your story? Have I allowed God to include me in his story? Is, is that my history in Jesus? Number two, am I allowing my spiritual history to be my memory in a way that shapes my self-identity and takes over all of the memories that create fear and insecurity and lack of self-worth, the negative memories, and all of those things that cause me to go this way and that way every week. That's the core commitment of healthy parenting, and, and actually it's the heart of encouraging and building each other up through our group life interactions with each other, helping us see well, interpret life according to the solid foundation of our spiritual history. We're told to build one another up. That's not talking about pumping each other's tires with a hug. It literally means strengthening each other by helping each other build on the solid foundation of our spiritual history. Because it's hidden, we can't see it, and our desires and the needs, our desires and needs of the moment are so dominant, we begin to judge based, judge God based on what He seems to be doing or not doing now, and we begin the downward trend always. Verse seven. If we do this memory, He says, then they would put their trust in God, would not forget His deeds, those actions in the past that created who they were, but because they remembered what God did, they would obey what God said. The key to obeying God's word is to, is to rehearse and remember and reprioritize our thinking by what God has done that proves he has not forsaken me or forgotten me, that proves he's perfectly capable of bringing his story to his conclusion. And I want to be in it when he does. But that's not the normal course of history. And in the bulk of this psalm, beginning in verse 8, which is sort of a summary transition verse, to, uh, he, he describes the normal course of downhill, the normal downhill course of human history as it relates to the central story of history, God's story. Verses 1 to 7, make sure you teach this foundational spiritual history to create a strong memory to the next generation so that they will put their trust and will not forget his deeds but will keep his commands, then they will not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. And from verses 9 to 64, the bulk of the psalm, the, the psalmist reminds them of the normal pattern of how their forefathers lived on the downhill slide of forgetting. They lived like we do with the what's God done for me lately thing. And they took things into their own hands at every single time life disintegrated in front of them. Or after them in the next generation. Let's just look quickly at, at one of the scenarios he reminds them of. In, in verse 9, he says, The men of Ephraim, although they were armed with bows, they turned back when they should have fought. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by his law. Ephraim was, was one of the, the tribes of the northern part of Israel. Um, he mentions them for two reasons, I think. Number one, because 
of all of the tribes of Israel, the men of Ephraim had this rich history. Ephraim was one of the sons of, 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 the, of the hero of the 12 sons of Jacob, 11 sons of Jacob. Uh, he was, it was Joseph. It was Ephraim's father. It was Joseph, who was faithful to God without a hiccup through years of being abandoned by his brothers and, and given to Egypt. And then in Egypt, framed by a powerful woman and spent years in prison and all of it just faithful to God, honoring God, doing, doing the thing of serving other people, helping other people. And, and Joseph's son was Ephraim. He had a great heritage. And in the blessing of, of Jacob, Jacob, Joseph's father, Ephraim was declared basically the most likely to succeed of all of the tribal leaders. But Ephraim's descendants just crashed royally. They presumed on their status, and, and the psalmist uses them to portray the spirit of Israel as a whole. That's, that's why he introduces this section with Ephraim. But he mentions it for a second reason, and that's to set them up for how he's going to wrap up the psalm, which we'll look at later. What is it about the spirit of this tribe of Israel that affected the whole nation? Well, very simply, they lost their spiritual memory. Picking it up at verse 11. They forgot, they lost their memory of what he had done. The wonders he had showed them. He did miracles in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt and the region of Zone. He divided the sea, led them through. He made the water stand firm like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the desert. He gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out of a rocky crag, made water flow down like rivers. But they just went on continuing to sin against him, rebelling in the desert against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding not just water to keep them alive, but the food that they craved. The food God gave wasn't enough, so he sent them the, the, the most high-quality meat they could have. When the Lord heard them, he was angry. His fire broke out against Jacob. His wrath rose against Israel, for they did not believe in God or trust that he would deliver them. Wow. How did they sin against God, put him to the test? Three times in this psalm, it says they put God to the test. Verse 18, verse 41, verse 56. Putting God to the test means exactly what parents mean when they say, don't push me. Right? There will come a time when God says, enough. We push our parents because we forget. We don't trust. We just live in the now. Even though God was continually protecting and preserving and providing for this ill-equipped, unprepared, unthankful group, the more he gave, the more they thought they needed, the more they thought they deserved, the more they demanded he give them. It's like, who's driving this bus? God, do this and I'll believe in you. God, do that or else I won't cooperate with you. God, if you do this, I will do that. I promise, right? It's all about me and my story and what God has or hasn't done lately to make me feel good or look good. And everything about our culture feeds that kind of mentality. The things we call suffering today, it's amazing. And what does God do when people put him to the test? As you read through these uh, verses 9 to 64, you see that God does 
over and over a cycle of three different kinds of things. Number one, many times he comes through and gives them exactly what they want. Parents, you know the dilemma. And when he does that, we think it's because we deserve it, but really it's only because his mercy is so, so big. And in the process, he grievingly allows us to grow soft. And sometimes he draws the line and says, enough. And he allows them to experience an early warning consequence of their acts, just a taste of what they deserve. Verse 31, God's anger rose against them. He put to death the sturdiest among them, cutting down the young men of Israel, but always keeping a remnant because God is not going to allow anyone, even his own people, to stop his story from moving along. And then they suddenly get the message, sort of, and he is quick to forgive. I'm sorry, God, I'll never do that again. I'll try harder. And they use exactly the words they think he wants to hear. But God knows they're just doing it because they want him to stop, not because they're sincere. Verse 34, whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned him again. They remembered that God was their rock, that God most high was their redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths. Flatter him with their mouths. I'm thinking that we'd call that worship. Lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Does God forgive? Yes, he does. Because he cannot deny who he is, a faithful, merciful God. But don't you get tired of going through that dysfunctional cycle over and over and over again? Does it not feel just a little bit hypocritical? Yet, verse 38, he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities that did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. The key reason for that downward skid is that I have a natural tendency to think it's about me, my feelings, my hurts, my dreams, my desires in the now. And I try to use God for my thing. We don't even realize we are doing it. We even use the right words. God, you are my rock and my redeemer. But at some point, when we start wondering What has God done for me lately? How has God helped me in this struggle that I'm having? How has God, trusting God, produced for me in this way in which I feel I'm being marginalized? When we start wondering those things, part of the solution is to go back to the memory we have of our spiritual history and ask the question, not what has God done for me lately, but how has God acted throughout history that shows me I can still trust because I know he's building his kingdom. He's creating a place where his way will happen, his love and truth will rule in spite of all the ways that we try to make it about me. He's done so many things in history to move his story forward, there's no way he won't bring it to completion and I really wanted to be part of it. So, as I look at the ups and downs of my own journey with God, is there any way that I'm starting to make it about me today? How God is is or is not coming through for me today? Is one of the reasons for my downs that I've made it simply a journey about how God comes through for me? Never enough. Our fears, which we're talking about this month, sometimes revealed in our anger, 
There's so much about me, aren't they? The psalm ends with how it is that God is still at that time. Now he brings them to their present. And he shows them how God still is moving his story on. Let's pick it up at, at verse 62 where he, 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 sort, of, he sort of ends that, that section about what they're not doing and what they haven't done and how they were unfaithful. He ends that section with kind of a bomb. Verse 62, he gave his people over to the sword. He was very angry with his inheritance, his people. Fire consumed their young men and their maidens had no wedding songs to sing. Their priests were put to the sword and their widows would not weep. It's not pretty. But with that ending, he now takes them into the present as he wraps it up. Remember, this is in the day of King David. And he says, verse 65, Then the Lord woke as from a sleep, as a man wakes from the stupor of wine. He beat back his enemies, not their enemies, his enemies, He put them to everlasting shame. Then he rejected the tents of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. King Saul was from the tribe of Ephraim, the king before David. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. He chose David, his servant, took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. And that's how the psalm ends. Seemingly with no conclusion. It just sort of ends, boom, like that. I I think he does that for two reasons. Number one, because of what it is he's trying to teach them. And he's wanting them to ask the unstated question, will we, this time, remember our spiritual history and remain faithful? This time, will it be they lived happily ever after? Or will we, like our forefathers, develop spiritual amnesia, making it all about me, and fail one more time? How did they do? Well, we know the answer to that. As the rest of the story goes on after the reign of King David and Solomon, which were mostly good leaders, although with very human people, things got even worse than in their past history. God got stronger in his judgment. He allowed the land of his promise to be taken over by vicious Assyria and later the southern part to be taken captive to Babylon. But I think there's a second reason it ends with, without a conclusion. And it's because... David is not the end of the story. There is one from the line of David to whom David pointed, one who would become the true shepherd king, the one, the only one who can truly say, I am the good shepherd because I lay down my life for the sheep. The one who would come, And invite us to come to him and live under him. The one who leads with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, Jesus Christ. 
the one to whom all of history to that point had pointed, the one in whom all of history is cradled, and the one whose history has become our history, our inheritance, the shepherd who laid down his life for us so we could really, truly, fully become his sheep. And yet so many times we still repeat the story, right? Forty years ago in March, I was a single youth pastor in a bedroom community between Toronto and Hamilton, Ontario, and, and I'd just gotten back together by snail mail letter with a young woman who I wanted to be my wife, and she was in Vancouver. We decided by letter and phone that, that she would come out to visit me in the last week of March. And when I told a pastor I was working with about that, he decided to get into the act and help me with my act. Uh, she was, she was fl- going to fly in one Sunday evening, and he said, you know, why don't Barb, his wife, why don't Barb and I join you to pick LaDonna up at the airport and go up to our cottage, which was three, uh, three hours north of Toronto, and, and, and we'll, you know, we, we sometimes go up there early in the spring and open it up for the year, and let's just spend three days there, just the four of us. You guys can hang out. The snow will be gone, and, and, and the lake will be open by then. We'll have a great time. So... We picked her up at the Toronto airport, 10 o'clock at night in March, drove up to the cabin or to the lakeside, to the lake, got to the lakeside about 1 o'clock in the morning. Now, this lake was on, on the French River chain in, in, in Canadian shield country, you know, with the, those, those rocks that just are big, smooth rocks that just sort of go right into the, into the lake. And, and, um, and nobody lived on this lake. This was remote. Just a couple of summer cabins with lake access only. And Stan kept a homemade dinghy hidden in the bush just off the roadside about 100 meters from the shore. And, uh, and we found it under a pile of branches and leaves at 1 o'clock in the morning. And we picked that heavy homemade thing up and put it down. And we put on the eight-horse kicker that he had, uh, had on his rooftop in the car. And, and uh, we loaded it up. The four of us got in. The, the water was about four inches below the gunnels. And uh, the two women sat in the middle seat, and Stan drove from the back seat. And, uh, and I was sitting in the, in, in the bow, so a small seat in the bow, looking backwards with my arms on the, the gunnels. And, uh, and we headed across that lake, no life jackets, one o'clock in the morning, pitch black. I'd never seen it so black. And... Um, Going along, Stan was uh, sitting there. He he loved regaling people with with his stories, and he had a new audience now. And and with the engine whining at high speed, Stan leaning forward so so Ladonna could hear. We're just going straight across that lake. And as we got closer, and Ladonna wondered how we'd find the cabin in the dark, he told her about how how in the summertime, when when Barb and the kids would sort of live up there most of the summer, and he'd come up after church Sunday night, and always uh, he'd arrive around midnight. And, and their cabin was in this very small bay uh, with, with a very narrow entrance to the bay. And, and at the entrance to the bay was this huge rock that stuck out into the lake. And uh, I'd been there. I knew it. I, we, we'd, we'd dive off that rock into the water. And, uh, and he, he told how before they went to bed, Barb and the kids would put a lantern on that rock so he could see it and find his way around it. Always put it on the same place so he'd know where to, where to go around that rock. And... I thought, you know, we must be getting fairly close. So I, I, I turned around from my perch to look to see if I could see the rock. And just as I'm turning, boom, we hit that rock 
and that rock didn't budge. And if we'd have hit it at just two degrees off the angle we hit at dead angle, we would have flipped that boat over, all been in the water, and who knows what would have happened in this freezing water. I've thought of that story several times this month because when Jesus came onto the scene, lived, taught, did many miracles that paralleled the same kinds of things God people experienced in Exodus which were pointing to what Jesus was going to do and he died to fulfill all those things that the law required and that the Exodus began. And after he left, and they were sort of left to figure out what it was that this three-year journey with Jesus was all about, Peter, put it this way, referring to the Old Testament metaphor of the rock, he says this, as you come to Jesus, the living rock, rejected by man but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this rock is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. You see, Jesus is for us one of two things. He's the rock on which we stand or he's the rock over which we're going to stumble. Someday, we're going to bump into him. In Daniel chapter 2, we saw a couple of years ago, he's the rock who will ultimately crush everything that has not come into him and under him. Two questions. Have I accepted Jesus' invitation to be included in his story? The stakes are pretty high. Either you allow him to be the rock on which you will build, allowing him to take you onto that rock by accepting his death as the, as the bridge to bridge the gap between you and God because of our failure, our sin, and our own history, or facing the possibility that he will be the rock into whom you will run someday and cause you to fall, literally, without a hope in hell. Do you really want to risk that? Number two. In what ways am I building on the rock? Digging deeper and deeper into his life through his word, through prayer, through accountability with someone who's growing and helping me live this way. Helping me to, to know and, and, and become familiar with and confident in the solid foundation on which I stand. Worship team, would you, would you come forward and lead us? We're going we're to reprise that. The joy of the Lord is my strength. The reason the joy of the Lord can be our strength is because we are confident on the rock on which we are built in spite of the winds of the day. Do you have that confidence? Let's stand as we sing.